Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 167, recorded on December 13th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. And let's start with this huge news with CentOS. Red Hat has announced that the future of CentOS is stream. It's CentOS, Wes, but not as we know it. Yeah, this is certainly a complex story, and we'll cover all the angles, but let's start with some context. CentOS has a long history, starting 16 years ago, way back in 2004 with its first release, version 2. CentOS stands for Community Enterprise Linux Operating System, and the project was a hit, offering a binary-compatible and subscription-free distribution built from the Red Hat Enterprise Linux source code. With one major caveat, of course, and that was that Red Hat's proprietary branding and logos, everything of that nature was removed. And also another big one, especially in production workloads, no Red Hat commercial support. But CentOS still managed to appeal to a broad market of developers, tinkers, and definitely people who just wanted to try out the platform before they paid for the platform. And CentOS also became famous along the way for some rough patches, some things that weren't necessarily ideal for an enterprise distribution. I think maybe more notable is on July 31st, 2009, the CentOS project leader disappeared. And to kind of give you a taste of how things were back then, the post starts, the, this is just the first sentence, quote, the future of the CentOS Linux project appears in jeopardy as the project leader, Lance Davis, has dropped off the face of the earth, end quote. Yeah, like many open source projects, uh, there's some troubles along the way, especially around control and organization of the project. But that didn't slow CentOS down. In 2010, they'd overtaken Debian to become the most popular Linux distribution for web servers, controlling almost 30% of the Linux web at that time. Yeah, Debian managed to claim some of that back later. And of course, now in 2020, according to W3Techs, as far as web servers go, Ubuntu has 47.6% of the market today. But CentOS, still in a strong number two with 18.8% of web servers that are active on the web today. Still very actively used. The next real notable thing that happened was January 27th, 2014. Red Hat Aqua hired some of the CentOS development team and the branding and the copyrights. So it was essentially a purchase, but in a kind of open source project style. And at the time, they said that Red Hat and the CentOS project would, quote, Join forces to spread, I'm sorry, join forces to speed up open source innovation, end quote. I don't think they quite said it like that, though. Now, you added just a little bit more flair, as you do. Now, from there, CentOS continued on until the next big era in announcement, which was last year in September of 2019, when CentOS Stream was announced and promised to transform the development experience within CentOS. And that brings us to this week, December 8th, 2020. Red Hat has announced that the CentOS project is shifting its entire focus to CentOS Stream. What has changed as of this week is the standard release of CentOS is going away in December 2021. There will not be a CentOS Linux 9. Updates for CentOS Linux 8, the standard distribution, will continue until December 31st, 2021. And CentOS Stream 9 will launch in Q2 of 2021 as part of the RHEL 9 development process. The significant change here is that 
CentOS will no longer be built from RHEL, and instead, RHEL will be built from CentOS, because going forward, CentOS means CentOS Stream. In the past, we used that to refer to what was basically just the rebuild of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, but CentOS is now CentOS Stream. You won't have traditional releases going forward into the future. You won't have a new CentOS 7.3 or 8.3. It's just going to be CentOS Stream. Yeah, the way to think about it now is it is the bridge of development between Red Hat Enterprise Linux and Fedora. Fedora is where operating system development and fundamentals happens. Stream is where the entire product is developed and refined. And RHEL is where it is shipped, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. This is a big departure from the way things have been. And the reaction to this has been massive. I've broken it down into four components. And I want to start with the communication because I think that's one of the number one complaints is this was communicated poorly. And, and Red Hat has attempted to address this, and individual uh, members of Red Hat have made some really great blog posts after the fact that really help clarify all of this. So we've had the benefit of reading those and can consolidate and relay it. But if, if you'd like, we do have some in the show notes. They've added significantly more to the conversation since the original announcement. It's a real shame these didn't come out before or with the announcement, or they didn't lead the announcement because they really clarify a few things. But additionally, if you zoom out, and I think it's unfortunate because it it speaks badly for Red Hat, is I think the echo chamber got them on this one. They were a little blindsided by this, and they didn't really think big picture here because they could have done a strategy that would have potentially just significantly lessened the blow of this thing. Just, you know, here's an example. Imagine Red Hat spent from now until RHEL 9, which is due in 2022. So let's just say a year and a half and change. Let's say they spent the next next year, year and a half and change, showing the world how you could take their universal base image, which is based on RHEL, and you could run that on CentOS Stream and have a good time. Or if they showed different use cases of people running CentOS Stream and how boring it is and how it's essentially the same experience. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem here, I think, is that CentOS Stream had partially been branded as something of a rolling release, although in the context of the RHEL universe. And that meant people didn't really think think you could be trusted in production, that it was right for that use case at all. And we haven't heard much about Stream, really, at least in the larger community since it was released last year. So being told that's your new operating system without really understanding it. That's a little bit scary. Yeah, you use that year and a half to correct the misconception that Stream is rolling. I mean, I've seen comparisons to Arch, which is ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. I think when people try this, they're going to be surprised at how boring it is. Um, so correcting correcting that misconception. And then last, well, actually, two more things they could have done is they are working on a free Red Hat Enterprise Linux program with less production restrictions. It's almost out. They could have launched that first. And then lastly, and probably most importantly and how it should have gone down, is this could have waited, easy for me to say, until CentOS 9 slash RHEL 9 and make the change at a major version. Because one of the number one things we've got in via email is people have just migrated to CentOS 8. Yeah, exactly. They're looking at that. They know that there's a long support cycle, or at least there used to be. And so they could take some time to make the shift in their own time when they were ready, start playing around in the new version of the release. And when you've just found out that all that work is maybe wasted, ouch. One of our Matrix chatters said that he had a day uh, that was like none other because 
he saw the news and later that day they were going to have a meeting about migrating to CentOS 8 and like within the span of one day the next year-long migration plan was just completely thrown out and like he's got I don't know no idea what we're doing now <laughs> we just it was I mean it just it disrupted a lot of people so not getting a good solid heads up and then reducing the perceived support window even if it wasn't a, a you know even if it wasn't written in stone, if it wasn't confirmed for sure, the perceived support window from 2029 to 2021, I mean, it's a massive reduction, right? So it's it's one of those situations where if you could have prepped people a little more for that coming, could have given them the logic and the reasoning and could have made them more comfortable with what they're transitioning to and given them more options to get free rel, all of that would have made this a lot smoother. So the communication strategy from Red Hat was like amateur hour. They rushed it. And you got to think that's the result of the echo chamber. Um, and I think the change in the in that life support commitment cycle also leads to this amount of reaction. Making that kind of change, regardless of how it was communicated, was going to upset people. Yeah. One of the big changes here is that CentOS stream support will only be five years. And five years is pretty great for, you know, community provided support, but it's not 10. And if that's what you're used to, maybe you're deploying stuff that's in environments that you don't touch or service often. It just It's just a different paradigm. Yep. That's, that is true. I'd say that's like the top third complaint. And the top fourth complaint out of a top four here is that people are convinced stream is going to be less stable than Red Hat Enterprise Linux. I think this is going to be one of those, we'll just see. Uh, Red Hat is making the case that, no, not really. We're still putting everything through the same continuous integration testing. We're still having all of the same validation requirements for what goes into CentOS Stream that goes into RHEL itself. And Red Hat's trying to make the argument that it's this engineering process that has led to RHEL's stability, not the not not like the order in which the packages move through different distributions. Yeah, in many ways, this is a modernization, right? Embracing some of the, the cloud workflows, modern DevOps workflows here. Previously, a lot of this work was hidden at Red Hat. We didn't see how exactly RHEL got built. But if you think about it, when you're trying to build this stable enterprise operating system, you can only tolerate so much change in the layer just above it when you're trying to build all these pieces together, integrate them, and test them. So I don't think there's a huge incentive for that to break all the time. Okay, maybe some things will happen, but there were bugs and issues in, in CentOS as a rebuild as well. Well, and, and RHEL actually had an issue that shipped in production with that uh, boot hole uh, flaw recently that caused some Red Hat Enterprise Linux systems not to boot. Um, it, it happens yeah. even at the RHEL level. And if you take away the change that a lot of sysadmins that maybe even have millions of deployments just had the, the land that just shifted under them, and we look at what this means for Red Hat Enterprise Linux, I think this is kind of interesting because it it does, in a sense, it moves the future of Red Hat Enterprise Linux out into the open and gives people a way to develop against that. Uh, like the Podman team, for example, is working with much more, it's a much more faster paced project. It's working, working with a lot newer technologies than the rest of traditional RHEL. And so for them, something like CentOS Stream gives them a pace that they can develop at and have it ready when RHEL 9 ships but it still goes through all of the same validation and testing. That could be if that if that if that works out right, that could be really just fine. People could end up converting to stream, which is apparently very simple to do. Um, you just gone through it once on a on a test system. It was it was very obvious and very simple. I don't know if, if it would be harder on a system that's been around for a year or two that maybe has more technical debt. It could be, but it's a supported it's a supported migration path from standard CentOS 8 to CentOS Stream 8. And if you make that change, I think you're going to find 
it's pretty basic. It's it's it feels just like regular CentOS. It also provides some more you know ways of actually working with the upstream community because if you know if you either are a RHEL customer or just using CentOS, you didn't have a great pipeline for getting in some of those fixes if you did run into a bug or you wanted a new feature. But now with Stream, you know it's open. Everything's out in the open. You can contribute. You can submit bugs, submit fixes, submit patches, and actually get influence and fix your own problems potentially or work with you know Red Hat and the open source community around it to improve things for the next version of the software you're going to be running and that wasn't really available before. Yeah, so that is obviously a clear improvement. Um, I think additionally, as a Fedora user, what I like about it is it kind of supplies a buffer between the community and the suits. CentOS Stream is where they're going to focus. It's where the attention's going to go for getting things ready. And it lets Fedora just be Fedora and not have to worry about trying to get itself into a shippable state that is enterprise supportable, et cetera, et cetera. They can continue to innovate and they can try to make the best product there. That then leads to CentOS where the suit pressure is applied, right? All of the expectations of the business get focused and it 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 kind of keeps that heat away from what is now a... A, you know, a daily desktop driver for me. And so I kind of like this arrangement from a Fedora user standpoint. It helps keep Fedora weird. Well, and, and I think we've seen speculation that, oh, if this is this is the end of Fedora, because, uh, you know, uh, if they did this to CentOS, then they're going to do it to Fedora next. But actually, it makes Fedora a critical part of like the fundamental operating system development that needs to happen, has to happen in a space that still gets used. It still, it still requires shipping a product because at at the end, they're trying to get it to something that they can turn into an enterprise product. And that means Fedora is critical for that early phase development. And it, and it means I keep getting fresh, cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, you're not going to just enable systemd homed on in CentOS stream because it doesn't make sense. You haven't tried it out. You don't know what all the implications or downsides are. But Fedora can be a place where that kind of more wild out in the open development can actually take place with fewer risks. And so you'll have, I think, a fair amount of users who will be very disappointed. And I think you're going to have a lot of sysadmins out there who had their trust violated, and it's probably never going to be forgotten. Like some of the famous moments in the past of CentOS or CentOS, this is yet another one of those. And um, I I think long term, they're probably going to be okay. You're probably going to have most users who are cost sensitive that have something in production, just make the switch. And then you'll have some that defect to the Ubuntu's and the SUSEs out there, um, and or purchase a Red Hat Enterprise Linux subscription. And of course, there you know are some new open source rebuilds in the work to try and take the place of what the you know former name of CentOS meant. We'll see. I guess that'll be a factor of you know how stable Stream is, if that works for companies, and if a, a legitimate and strong enough open source community forms over in those new areas. Yeah, we should probably get to a couple of the forks in a moment. But, you know, I was just thinking, Wes, as we were talking about this, the other thing that you have to keep in mind is all of this is happening while AWS is coming along and gobbling up more and more of the traditional server market share. And more and more applications are just getting shipped as containers and people could care less what the distribution is. And you have to wonder if in that new world, if a free version of your operating system isn't maybe more important than ever to stay competitive and to get user base and. And that's the thing is if Red Hat doesn't keep those users, somebody like AWS, who's now offering Amazon Linux, which is based on 
Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Indeed. Comes along and says, oh, by the way, now we also have some on-premises offering. So you can use the same management tools for your on-premises install as you do the ones up in AWS Cloud. And oh, by the way, you can deploy Amazon Linux and it's a supported RHEL clone. And um, they may be risking some market loss to essentially the cloud in this move as well. Yeah, it is a time to be relevant and to be easy to try things out, right? Will Will CentOS Stream have that same sort of, you know, understanding that you can click that when you see it in your dashboard of whatever cloud you're using to spin up a new instance to play around for your next project? Is it going to have an appeal to you that you're actually going to want to use? Um, the One of the former co-founders co of CentOS has launched Rocky Linux. It's already, like, become the number one project on GitHub over the weekend. Lots of excitement and activity. And Cloud Linux, which is made by a cloud hosting provider, has also come along and said, we're going to offer Cloud Linux, and we already have the staff and the team to maintain it. We're ready to go. So just overnight, practically, you've had at least two, and I've seen a third pop up as well. Well, and you know Oracle is uh, advertising their uh, unspeakable Linux as well. Right. They finally like woke up and tried to take advantage of the situation and said, hey, check us out. And by the way, we have a newer kernel if you want it too, <laughs> with ButterFS support. Oh boy. <laughs> that was actually part of their pitch. <laughs> Everybody's going to try to, you know, everybody who's going to try to take advantage of this now, this vacuum in the market for this, because clearly there was people that wanted CentOS. It was a very popular distribution. It served a need. Um, and, and somebody will come along and offer it maybe Red Hat will step up and they'll they'll refine their free Red Hat Enterprise project. Maybe they'll get more people using the universal base image. Or maybe people are just going to switch to Rocky Linux 9 when it comes out. Only time will tell on that one, but this is all going to be stuff we'll be following here on Linux Action News. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account. And go there to support the show. Linode is our cloud server provider. And because the price is so great, it makes it possible for a small team to have killer infrastructure. And personally, one of the things that I think is great about Linode is all of the distributions they support. I recently converted a CentOS 8 box to CentOS Stream. And they got all the Alpines, Arches, recent CentOS releases, Debian's, Fedora's, OpenSUSE's, and Ubuntu's. Oh my! They've got it all. If you need a personal server for a blog or a portfolio or maybe a game server or VPN server, they got systems that start at $5 a month. But when you go to linode.com slash LAN, you get a $100 credit. Now you can really build out some infrastructure, maybe something for your business. You'd be surprised with 11 data centers around the world, you can get a server right next to your clients and serve them super fast. But what I love about Linode, beyond their great dashboard, the 40 gigabit connections, native SSDs on the hypervisors. What I really like about them and trust about them is their love for Linux and open source. Supporting Linux and open source initiatives has been a key part of Linode's core from the beginning. They've sponsored projects like Kubuntu, the All Things Open conference, and of course, our beloved Linux Fest Northwest. And you know, they started before AWS. They've been in this game for a long time because they followed, they followed the, the gold. They followed what they loved about Linux. They followed their passion. And that led them to create Linode. And then through their success, they've supported key parts of the open source ecosystem. And now this year, Humble Show. And I invite you to go check them out and see what I've been talking about. Linode.com slash LAN. You go there, you get the $100 60-day credit towards a new account, you support the show, and you get a cloud provider that's dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode.com slash LAN. Also, 
Thank you to Ting for sponsoring this here show. Linux.ting.com. I've talked about Ting for a long time. But right now is truly the best time to switch to Ting. It's the next generation of Ting Mobile, and you could save more than ever and get $25 off when you go to linux.ting.com. Ting is a mobile provider that just makes sense. And now they have plans with data that starts unlimited at $15 and $45, depending on what you need. So if you use two, gigabit, two gigabytes or 20 gigabytes, well, there's a perfect Ting plan for you and your family now. They've made a lot of improvements, but don't worry, all of the core stuff that I've always talked about Ting, it's still there. They still got the award-winning customer service. They still have nationwide LTE and now 5G coverage and still no contracts ever. Ting Mobile customers can now choose from three different plans based on your data needs. It's really simple to switch to Ting. You're gonna wonder why all cell phone providers don't have to do it this way. Ting sets the bar so hard, you gotta try it. Go to linux.ting.com, you can check your current phone, you create an account, pick a plan that's right for you, and they're just gonna mail you a SIM card. You pop that in your phone and you're activated in minutes. Or you can get something new too, they have a Ting store where you can get devices directly. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier. It's really awesome to watch Ting make this big transition, to really step it up. I mean, unlimited data plans starting around $15 and going to $45, that's that's crazy. I can't even believe that's on there. And with the ease to manage your account through their dashboard, there's really no reason not to try it. Linux.ting.com. Go there, support the show, and get $25 off. And thank you to everybody who supports our sponsors to make it possible for independent media to give our shows away for free to cover our costs it makes all of the difference. Thank you to our sponsors, linode.com slash lan and linux.ting.com. And thank you everyone who supports those sponsors. Linux.ting.com, linode.com slash lan. For the past five years, Google has been quietly developing a new operating system, Fuchsia, from the ground up. Starting this week, Google's Fuchsia OS is now being developed more openly including accepting contributions from the public. Last year, Google quietly launched an official Fuchsia development website for the project, aiming to teach developers how best to work on the operating system, and to a much lesser extent, how to make apps. All throughout the last four years, though, Fuchsia has been something of a secretive skunkworks project, with Google remaining surprisingly quiet about its purpose. And that's sort of the big change this week. The company is making something of a splash with Fuchsia on the Google open source blog, and they're making an opening call for developers to contribute to the project. In fact, this is really the first formal announcement of the Fuchsia operating system's existence and how Google plans to use it. They say in this post, Fuchsia is a long-term project for a general purpose open source operating system. And today we're expanding Fuchsia's open source model to welcome contributions from the public. The blog goes on to continue to say, Fuchsia is designed to prioritize security, upgradability and performance, and is currently under active development by the Fuchsia team. We have been developing Fuchsia in the open, in, uh, by their definition, I guess that's true, because they go on to say, in their Git repository for the last four years, you can browse the repository history, they give you the URL, which we have, and you can see how Fuchsia has evolved over time. They finish by saying, we are laying this foundation from the kernel up to make it easier to create long-lasting, secure products and experiences. Perhaps more importantly for both interested developers and uh, us, the general public, 
Google now has a public roadmap for Fuchsia's development. On it, you can see things like the projects that the Fuchsia team is actively undertaking, eh, such as the revamp of their component system. Yeah, you know, they, they keep talking about how their goal is to have a robust, secure, general-purpose operating system for production. Gosh, Wes, that sounds an awful lot like Linux. Um, but they don't want you to get confused. This isn't for toys. They say on the site, Fuchsia's goal is to power production devices and products used for business-critical applications. As such, Fuchsia is not a playground for experimental operating system concepts. Instead, the platform roadmap is driven by practical use cases arising from partner and product needs. And that felt like a little bit of a, I know you've all been saying this is our playground, but we're actually building this to be a production OS on day one. And again, that to me reads as exactly the market that Linux is addressing. So you're wondering why Fuchsia? I'm wondering, I'm wondering if Fuchsia isn't like, uh, you, this, is my, this is my Fuchsia conspiracy bacon, but I'm wondering if Fuchsia isn't kind of like a... Um, a backup plan for the Linux kernel and maybe the Linux kernel team not going along with them in the future. Um, you know, sort of how you can kind of have a plan B that helps you apply pressure in negotiations. Mm. If someone knows you've got a credible threat, then they're more likely to concede and compromise versus if they think they have power over you. And I wonder if this isn't Google's credible threat, like a like a, a way to bargain a little bit and say, well, if you guys don't go this way, we're just going to focus all in on Fuchsia. It is interesting, and I think either way, it's clearly, you know, they've learned a lot in their wide-scale deployments of Linux, and I think a lot of that knowledge is going into some of Fuchsia's development. I mean, I think particularly of their long history developing, you know, containers and other um, deployment methodologies and security things like Gvisor for Linux and having to deal with Linux security issues, their work on Android, and also now all those smaller devices they ship, you know, in their Google Home platform, Chromecast, those especially seem like ripe targets for Fuchsia. Oh, yeah, for sure. And they've been really clever. A lot of the development languages and methodologies that people use to write for Fuchsia are gaining traction elsewhere in the market. Google has very cleverly been playing the long game on this one and and got people to adopt these technologies well ahead of Fuchsia's release. So you may see in 2021 uh, some actual smoke to this fire, and adoption uptick may be pretty relatively simple, since a lot of people are already using the languages and tools that Fuchsia OS uses. Yeah, I think that'll be the next question is, you know, is it is it easy for me to actually get Fuchsia deployed somewhere and run my apps on it? Until that happens, I don't really see it overtaking Linux for general, you know, application deployment, um, but certainly could make some inroads in specialized sectors. We'll see what happens. But bringing us a little closer to home, we do end the show today with a brand new shiny kernel. Linux 5.10 is released. And besides being the last kernel release of 2020, this is also a significant milestone because it's a long-term support version of the Linux kernel to be maintained for at least five years. And it's also just a big sucker. Yeah, Linux 5.10 LTS is likely to be the kernel used in operating system releases like Debian 11 and Magia 8, among many others. Although I should note that Fedora 34 and Ubuntu 21.04, well, those are more likely to see Linux 5.11. As for Linux 5.10, well, the merge window closed in October. Yeah, and this is one of the largest kernel releases in recent times, so there's 
a lot to dig into. Michael Arbel over at Pharonix has been doing a yeoman's amount of work to dig through some of this, but we grabbed a couple of our our favorite things in here. There's a lot of continued work in Intel's forthcoming Rocket Lake and Alder Lake hardware to get that ready for day one Linux support. And AMD Zen 3 platform users got temperature monitoring now built into Linux. But the thing that I'm really excited for is Raspberry Pi VC4 support is now baked into mainline Linux. Yeah, this Raspberry Pi 4 display support is really nice to see. And the timing works out well because Mesa 20.3 introduced the V3DV Vulkan driver for the Raspberry Pi 4 support, which is a story we talked about last week. Yeah, now we're seeing that Mesa and that Vulkan driver come together all in the Linux kernel, which is just a big deal for Raspberry Pi 4 users. Like yourself. Yep, I'm very happy about it. But you must be pretty excited about the Creative Lab Sound Blaster stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Creative Labs Sound Blaster AE-7 sound card is finally supported under Linux, thanks to the work of the open source community. And isn't that nice? Like, Linux is still a place where if you have a device that you want work, you can get the code made. Well, you can get it shipped. Wes is always going on about his Sound Blasters. Uh, just like I've always been going on about my Nintendo Switch controllers. I got those Nintendo Switch Pro controllers. They're expensive. I would love to be able to use them with Linux instead of having to get like the Xbox controller. And now no like side module needed, no more DKMS for me baked right into 510 is support for the Nintendo Switch Joy-Cons and Pro controllers. Should be working for both USB and Bluetooth. Obviously I haven't tested this yet. It's all thanks to the new Nintendo HID driver. And uh, you even get rumble support and gyro data. Ooh, neat. Um, this seems like another great reason I should pick up a Switch. Yes, 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 it is, Wes. Yes, it is. There are some also good security improvements in 5.10, including some hardening against possible DMA attacks by external PCI Express devices. That's nice to see. And a neat feature we're now stealing from the BSDs that they've had for years, which is the no SIM follow mount option. Mm, Merry Christmas us. Yes, and now we are onward to Linux 5.11's merge window with many fancy new features on tap, which we will keep an eye on. It's due in the second week, so you'll see uh, people landing some stuff in there just before the Christmas holiday break. So you may expect the kernel team to be a little more strict than usual about accepting already properly tested ready code not anything that looks a little shaky because nobody wants their holiday wrecked no right i don't want a broken linux kernel under my christmas tree well that does bring us to the end of this week's episode but go to linuxactionnews.com slash prescribe for all the ways to get new episodes as we update you on these stories as you know they're going to develop and linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And why not join the new Coda Radio Happy Hour, jblive.tv, Mondays at 5 p.m., 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us for a special live stream and hangout. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Next week.